As Matt also said, today is the 4th of December, which means that if you have an advent calendar, you should be on day four of that advent calendar, just in case you hadn't worked out how that worked yet. Um, but for us um, as Christians, Advent is far more than just opening up a, a little door on a calendar one day every day, no, once a day in December and getting some chocolate or um, I don't know what else you might have in your Advent calendar. I know someone has rubber ducks in their Advent calendar, which I think is outstanding. But more than opening up a door and finding a fun thing um, day by day, Advent for us is a season of longing. The word Advent comes from a Latin word, which literally just means coming, um, and it is about preparing for the coming of Jesus at Christmas, but it is also, as we've been doing this morning, um, longing for and preparing for the second coming of Jesus, his return, um, and when he, when he will come back to us. So we are going to be looking a little bit at that this morning, but we are also still in our Exodus series. Um, so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 25 today. And if you were with us last week, you'll have heard us talking, us Martin, talking on the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are the most famous, probably, of the laws given to Israel. But as Moses was on that mountain, receiving, like, talking to God, um, receiving law from him, um, there, was, there were many, many instructions that he was given um, the Ten Commandments was the beginning, but then it continues, if you read on through Exodus, with lots and lots of laws and instructions of just how Israel were to live and what they were to do. And I actually want to jump to the end of all of those instructions, because at the end of those instructions, God spends a long time telling Moses exactly how to build this structure called the tabernacle. And that is what we are going to look at today. Um, and I want us to see how the tabernacle can help us understand the story of Christmas and of Advent. So we're going to look at the tabernacle and we're going to look a bit, of, bit at um, the story of the coming of Jesus. Um, so we've got a bunch of places to go, but for now we are in Exodus chapter 25. I'm going to read from verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. Goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now, what is happening in that passage is God is speaking to Moses on the mountain, giving instruction to the people. And the instruction he's giving, as you hear, is, is that Moses is to ask for contributions from the people in order to gather all the materials that are going to be needed to build this big structure called the tabernacle. And as you saw in that, God is very specific about exactly what materials are going to be used to build this tabernacle. Now, this is the first place in the Bible that the tabernacle is mentioned. 
Um, but it is a, a theme or it is something that then comes up a, a lot throughout um, Israel's history. It then gets um, replaced by the temple um, a bit later in Israel's history. But this is the first place we see it. And this isn't the only instructions that we get of what's to be um, involved in the tabernacle. After these verses that I've just read, Exodus has six chapters on instructions of exactly how the tabernacle is to be built. And then at the end of the book of Exodus, there's another really long section where it sort of goes back through all of those instructions and said, they did that, and then they did that bit, and then they did that bit. A really significant chunk of Exodus is taken up telling us exactly how this tabernacle was made and what it looks like and what it is. And a general rule is that if the Bible spends a lot of time talking about something or telling us about something, that is something to pay attention to. That's an important thing. So we know the tabernacle is important, but what is it? <laughs> um, in its simplest form, the tabernacle is a big tent. Um, it's a very nice tent, though, as you heard of all those materials. It's got lots of, um, it was made with gold and silver and bronze and all these, like, fancy yarns. And, like, it's going to have huge curtains in it with, like, elaborate embroidery. It was, it was a beautiful tent. It had three different sections in it as well. It had, like, an outer section. And then as you move through, there's, like, a, a section, like, another space, um, which was called the holy place, that only priests were allowed to enter. And then as you move further in, you get to this bit right in the center called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And nobody was allowed into the holy of holies, apart from the high priest who was allowed to go in once a year. The tabernacle was a big tent, and it was beautiful, and it was representative of God's holiness. <laughs> It was a place that Israel could come and worship God and make their sacrifices to God. And it showed them something of God's character and who he was. But you'll also see in verse 8 that I read, God tells them exactly why they are making it. And it is not just so that they can worship. In verse 8 it said, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This wasn't just a place for the people to worship God. This was a place for God to dwell, to live, to be in the midst of his people. This was a place that as the people came to worship, they would be in the presence of God. That living God, the one who had just brought them out of Egypt, displaying his mighty power and awesome like strength and authority. The God who has just met them on Mount Sinai. Sinai? Sinai, um, displaying to them his glory and inviting them to his presence, turning up with trumpet sounds and clouds of smoke. This God is saying now to build a home for him that he might live and move with his people. Because the significant thing about the tabernacle being a tent is that that meant that it could move, which meant that that the people of Israel were not then restricted just to the Mount, Mount Sinai if they wanted to go and seek God's presence. Because the people of Israel, they were about to become a nomadic people. For if you go through numbers, you see how they are a people who for a long time are wandering in the desert. And throughout all of that time, God was setting himself up to be a part, like a God who wanders with them in the desert and in fact leads them in the desert. 
He is making a dwelling place for himself so that he can move as his people move. In the hostile desert, their God will move with them and dwell with them. Now, this idea is one we talk about a lot, of God coming to dwell with his people. And you know when we talk about things a lot, sometimes we can get a bit numb to the idea or just we find it a bit familiar and it stops blowing our mind. But this is an idea that should blow our mind. Um, The um, culture that Israel have just come out of, they were living in Egypt, um, and Egypt was a culture that had many, many gods that they worshipped. And in Egyptian mythology, all of the gods were said to dwell in the sky. So they weren't gods that like came and were with the people. They were far off, distant, living above them. And Pharaoh, was his job was to be a like intermediary, like a mediator between the gods and the people. But even Pharaoh didn't really live with the people. He would have lived removed in like a big, fancy, I want to say mansion, but that's probably not the word for an Egyptian place. Um, even Pharaoh would not have lived with his people. This is the concept of gods that, and a god that that people would have been familiar with, gods who are distant and far removed. But as Israel come out and are drawn out into the desert, they discover a God who doesn't want to be removed. They discover a God who wants to be right in the center of them, with them, in their midst. He didn't just want worship from them. He wanted to be with them. How different is this God from all other gods? This God who is in resplendent glory and dazzling holiness and in a tent in the desert. This was God's house in the wilderness. And how reassuring would that have been to the people as they wandered through this desert? Because they were a people, although numerous, they had been slaves, they were vulnerable, and they were camping with their children and their cattle. They would have been surrounded by enemies on all sides that might have come to attack them. They would have been at risk of famine and drought. But through all of that, they had the assurance of the mighty God with them, defending them. Though God kept himself invisible to them, the symbols of his presence helped his people to remember that he dwelt among them. He watched over them. He set their agenda for life. He offered constantly to them the blessing of his covenant, even in this hostile wilderness that they are about to enter into. Um, Moving on to verse 9, where God is giving that instruction. Um, He describes exactly how he wants his home in the wilderness to be. And he's very, very precise about it. And before he's given any of the instructions to Moses, he sets this, this, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. He tells Moses, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God wants to come and dwell with his people and live here with them in this tent. But he has very specific requirements and instructions for what that needs to look like and what that needs to be, down to the measurements and, as we saw, the materials that are used. You might wonder why it has to be so specific, what what the tabernacle was to look like. Um, And I think that it's because the tabernacle was representing a few things to the people. It was representing God's presence, but I think also 
it was representing in a bit of a, like, a callback to the Garden of Eden. There's a, a few different um, things in the tabernacle that might point this out to us or like um, give us like clues that it was a bit of a callback. The, there's a lampstand that's described to be in the tabernacle, which some people say is a bit of an echo of the tree of life that was found in the Garden of Eden. Um, on the curtains to the most holy place, there were like big embroidered cherubim guarding it. Um, and they, again, some people think might be a bit of a callback to that cherubim that was set to guard the Garden of Eden. Um, and if this, this tabernacle, this tent, was supposed to be a bit of a callback, if it was supposed to look like a garden, then as the people were building it, and as the people, like, the priests worshipped in it, it would have reminded them constantly of that time when God and man walked together when they were face to face in the garden, where they dwelt together, not just, not just via tent, um, but they, they dwelt together and walked together and talked together and knew one another. This would have produced in the people a longing to return to that place, that place where man and God could dwell without any boundary, without any barrier between themselves. But I don't think that the Garden of Eden is the only thing that the tabernacle is representing. In fact, I know that it isn't, because the writer of Hebrews tells us that the tabernacle is representing and symbolic of another thing. It says in Hebrews 8 that these things serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And then it repeats the same thing we've seen. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The writer of Hebrews here is telling us really clearly that the tabernacle is a bit like a copy of a heavenly reality, of something that is like present and there in heaven. And I don't think it was supposed to be like an exact copy on the earth, but certainly it was to represent to the people a heavenly reality and again, to create in the people a longing to go and be with God there. <laughs> to know him, not again, not just in a tent on earth in the desert, but to know him where he is. To be face to face with him in heaven. This tabernacle, it was designed, designed <laughs> to point to the greater and more eternal opportunity to live with God. I think it was a bit like maybe the difference between like smelling something and tasting something. I remember once when I was, I think I must have been fairly young, I was walking with my mum through a, this town centre and we walked past a like store that was selling hot chocolates and as children often do, I point like stopped and was like, I want one of these hot chocolates because I could smell it and it smelled good. And my mum said, well, we're not, we're not going to get a hot chocolate now, but why don't we stop for a minute and we'll stand and we can smell it and we can enjoy the lovely smell of these hot chocolates. <laughs> and I remember thinking, that is a terrible idea. <laughs> because it, and it didn't work. It was a lovely idea from my mum. But the more I stood and I smelt these hot chocolates, um, the more it just made me want the real thing. <laughs> the more I wanted to taste it and be satisfied and fulfilled by it. And actually, yeah, I, I wasn't wa then walking away like, ah, oh, that was a lovely smell. And in fact, she was right, I was satisfied. I walked away wanting that thing all the more. 
And I think the tabernacle was supposed to do a similar thing, that as they experienced something of God's presence on earth, in a like veiled way through these curtains, it was supposed to produce in them a longing for the real thing that would satisfy them forever. God projected his presence symbolically among them on earth in this way so that they could be a people who learn to long for and to live for the time when they would actually dwell in his presence fully and permanently. God projecting his presence on earth maybe reminds us of another time when God projected his presence on earth. This time, not symbolically, but physically, really. When Jesus came, God physically came to earth. He took on flesh to be with his people and come and live in the midst of his people. Just like, as God did with the tabernacle, except so much better, so much more fully. Listen to how John describes it at the beginning of his gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what's interesting is the word there that's used, as it? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwell. It can also be translated as tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And this helps us to see that we can understand God coming and putting on flesh through this image of the tabernacle, through this image of a God that is desperate and longing to dwell with his people and have his people come and know him. Like the tabernacle, God putting on flesh was a way for him to dwell with his people. And if it was radical for God to want to dwell with his people in a tent in the desert, how much more radical is it for God to put on flesh and become a man and dwell with us in that form, becoming weak and finite, stepping down from glory. And just like with the tabernacle, this wasn't just a way for God to be with his people. This was a way for the people to come and be with God like never before. At Christmas, we celebrate him coming as a baby, but he didn't come to remain as a baby. He came to be a man who knew people and talked to people and was friends with people. This is the light of the world in a robe and dusty sandals. Imagine what it would have been like to be his friend. Imagine living your normal life as a fisherman or collecting taxes or something that women did. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Imagine living your normal life only for it to be swept up by this man. Imagine getting to be one of the people who was with him once the crowds left in the intimate spaces when he was tired. One of the people that talked with him 
One of the people that, just as we were singing, like, um, where, like, to talk to God, they didn't have to pray. They just had to chat to their friend. Imagine having breakfast with him. Imagine praying with him. Imagine laughing with him and crying with him. Imagine what it felt like to feel like your life was being turned upside down by this man, and yet somehow everything was the right way up for the first time. Imagine seeing things that you never have, could have imagined, just day by day as you sat out with him to see what he would do. But more than seeing the sick healed and the demons cast out and hearing the radical teachings that is changing lives, more than all of that, imagine what it would have been like to have loved him face to face. This man that made you feel alive like never before. To have been with him and felt the fierceness of his fire and the embrace of his gentleness physically with you. Imagine what it would have been like to have known so surely and deep that even when people are offended and leaving, that this man has the words to eternal life. And then imagine what it would have been like that night when sat round a table eating a Passover meal, he turns to them and says these words, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then imagine the devastation of watching this man that you love be arrested that night, and then the next day be hung on a Roman cross to die, and your whole world going black. And then three days later, just as they thought it was all over after one of the darkest nights of their lives, just as the sun was rising, there he is, alive, risen, waiting for them on a beach. Jesus was with them for another 40 days or so before he was taken up into heaven, never to die again. <laughs> and so began the age of the Spirit, where God's Spirit would come and live in them. And that is the age that we are living with now, in now. But after walking with Jesus, after eating with him and talking with him, how could the disciples not have longed to be with their friend again, the one that they loved? How could they not have clung to that promise that he had made that night where everything changed when he'd said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that you, <laughs> that where I am, you may be also. How they would have clung to that. 
how they would have been desperate and longing to be where he is. How aware they would have been all the time, even as they talked with God and prayed, that Jesus, the one they loved, he wasn't there. He had gone. If the tabernacle was designed to form Israel and teach them to be a people who long to be with God where he is, how much more, now that we've, like, I guess we haven't known Jesus, but can, like, read about him and, and know him through, through the Bible and through Scripture of what he was like as he walked on the earth, how much more should we be a people of longing that he would return, that he would come and be with us, that may, we might go and be where he is. This is what Advent is about. It is about preparing for Christmas. And it's not wrong to be excited and, and doing all the Christmassy things during Advent. But really, truly, deeply, Advent is where we can learn to long for him again. Learn to to yearn for the one that we love to return. And you might be wondering, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Because God does live in us, and we do have access to him now, and that is true, we do. But I think it's a little bit like, you know when you have like a long-distance friend? Um, the friends that we miss the most and um, want to be with the most are the friends that we talk to the most, aren't they? If you have a long-distance friend who you don't really talk to that much, they don't, you don't think about them that much, do you? They don't come into your head. You're not missing them that much. But it's then when you speak to them, and when you start speaking regularly to them, that you realize just all the more that they're not with you. That the conversations, although they might be sweet and lovely, really maybe just make you long for the real thing, that they might be, like, they might, yeah, that they might be with you, that you might be able to talk to them face to face again. And I think it's kind of similar, that we do know God. We can talk to him. We do have direct access. We can come right into his presence and stand before his throne and talk with him, and we can hear from him. But Jesus isn't here. Paul was, um, wrote a lot of letters um, when the church was just getting going, and a theme throughout so much of his writing, and actually so much of the writings of these um, early disciples and apostles, um, was of longing and yearning and waiting for the day that it would all be fulfilled, that they would be with him. Listen to how Paul talks in his letters. In Philippians 1, he says, "'My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Then later that same letter in Philippians 3, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians, he says, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yet we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. For we know that the whole, oh sorry, it says in Romans, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I feel provoked as I read these verses and, and preparing this, have like seen this theme of like waiting and longing so consistently in the New Testament that I should be longing and like aiming to see my earthly circumstances through this lens of eager waiting. And honestly, I don't think I do. Every day, I allow my yearning for Jesus to be dampened by the trivialities of the world. Because I live, I live a very comfortable life by basically any standard throughout human history. And so it's hard for me to desperately long for Jesus to come and wrap up all of history like a garment when my vision is so clouded by things that are distracting and trivial and mundane. And this can be like even harder at Christmas, can't it, where we get distracted by like cinnamon cookies and hot chocolates and <laughs> online shopping and twinkling lights. And all of these are a blessing until I turn to them for the comfort which they cannot deliver. And until I allow my gaze to be fixed on those things, rather than the saviour that I long for and I love. Because I don't think that we're supposed to find ultimate fulfilment here on earth. I don't think we're supposed to find like the deep satisfaction through comforts, because they just don't satisfy, do they? He does. Just as Israel was supposed to be a people who anticipated being with God in heaven. We're supposed to be a people who long for and yearn for being with Jesus now. A people who are so aware that he is not here and who mourn his absence. And this is the invitation of Advent. <laughs> that as we look forward to celebrating that God came to be a man on earth, he came to walk with people here, that we might also lean into the longing for Jesus to return. Lean into the morning that he isn't here and the acute awareness that things are not okay around us. Just as, as Fergus prayed earlier about all of the brokenness and devastation that really surrounds us. During Advent, we can lean into the hope that he is coming back to put all things right. All of creation is groaning for that day. I want to be someone that is groaning for that day. I want to be someone who is waiting eagerly for my adoption as my Savior comes to put all things right when I can know him face to face and talk with him and be with him. I'm not suggesting that we become a people who reject all comfort or who are perpetually just like in sackcloth and ashes as we mourn that Jesus isn't here. But Paul could say, even as he was in prison, that the only thing that mattered to him was Christ. 
that it didn't matter that he was in prison. It didn't matter when he had much. It didn't matter when he had little because all that mattered was that Jesus was coming. I want to be able to say the same thing. Um, I'm going to, can I invite the band back up? Um, I, I'm convinced that, that the more we can resist becoming numb to the not okayness that is all around us, um, the more we might be able to view all of our earthly circumstances through the deep hope that Christ is coming back, that he will return, he will make all things right, and we will be with the one that we love, the God who throughout all of human history has desired to come and be with his people and dwell with us and us with him.